Welcome to A Citations Needed News Brief. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. We come to you on this Insurrection Day in the United States. What was generally going to be uh, and has been a uh, perfunctory Senate and uh, congressional meeting to authorize the results of the November 2020 election, telegraphed well in advance that there were going to be mobs outside the Capitol of Trump supporters. And yet, lo and behold, Adam, shocking though it may seem, it seems that the Capitol police were caught off guard. Ah, yes. (laughs) Completely caught off guard and just... Mysteriously caught off guard. ...were overwhelmed by the mob that then uh, broke into the U.S. Capitol building which was thenceforth evacuated and locked down. And then we have been hearing, of course, once Congress reassembled at 8 p.m. in the evening on the East Coast from Vice President Mike Pence, how noble the heroic efforts of the law enforcement officers were that quickly cleared the building, quote unquote, quickly. So uh, hours of this surreal kind of insurrection happening, uh, shocking though not surprising, though it may have been. We have been hearing uh, throughout the day today, Adam, how this is not really who we are, that law enforcement must be respected, and that the general democratic operations of our nation, of the United States of America, cannot be intimidated, cannot be threatened away, because if they are, Adam, what do we turn into? A third world country or a banana republic. Indeed. So there is this tick we've talked about on the show before. We haven't spoke about it in a while. I've written about it a lot. I wrote about it for FAIR, wrote about it for LA Times, wrote about it, talk about it on Twitter nonstop for years. But for some reason, well, racism. Well, I think more accurately. <laughs> Spoiler. More accurately, I think national chauvinism. The American media is pathologically incapable of criticizing Trump or Trumpism or fascism in the United States without evoking, comparing it to, or equating it with the quote-unquote third world or quote-unquote banana republic or quote-unquote tin pot dictatorships, these orientalist and racist cliches, or specifically evoking countries in the Middle East, Bulgaria, the Middle East, Venezuela, Colombia. African dictatorships. Those people over there are like that. We are not like that. This is not something that's essentially American. It's very unheard of here. What we want to do in this news brief is say why that's not just racist and bad in and of itself, but it largely serves a rhetorical function mm-hmm. and an ideological function, which is to smooth over and ameliorate the true essence of what the United States is and what its foundational elements are mm-hmm. and how those foundational elements create contradictions and schisms, which are invariably emerge when certain things break down. And the same corporate media that was soft on, glad handled, treated very lightly Trump and Trumpism for years, mm-hmm. once it manifested to its logical conclusion, its inevitable and obvious yeah. conclusion, they therefore couldn't say this is American because that would indict them in their nationalist mythology. So we have to actually say this is something that's foreign or bizarre or something that's been imported from Russia. Exactly. Unlike us. that it, It's all a joke, right? He's a clown and this is unserious until people get hurt. Certain people, only certain people, or only certain people are threatened. What we're seeing from a lot of Republicans, certainly, again, is a totally unsurprising and gross and expected. But this idea of condemning the violence and this is not how we do things... This is the party, and these are the people who literally have brought us to this point, and on purpose, 
on purpose have encouraged this and then Pearl Clutch and uh, Rush to the Fainting Couch when they are themselves the ones in harm's way, as it were. But to the point of this kind of third worldism, we were seeing it all day today. As soon as I tuned into NBC News this afternoon, I heard Lester Holt lament what images were coming across on the screen and saying, as Trump flag-waving people broke into the Capitol, were filing in and out of Statuary Hall, were breaking into offices, etc. And we were seeing these images on the screen. Lester Holt lamented to all the NBC viewers, we've seen disputed elections before in faraway lands, but, heartfelt pause, this is the United States of America. And uh, so that sentiment carried through in so much of what we then kept hearing throughout the afternoon. I think, you know, one of the first that I saw also was uh, from Marco Rubio, Adam, wherein he tweeted, quote, There is nothing patriotic about what is occurring on Capitol Hill. This is third world style anti-American anarchy. Right. From Abigail Spanberger, who's a uh, former CIA, we think former, uh, who's a former CIA agent and turned congresswoman from Virginia, said, quote, I'm a former intelligence officer, to sort of lend her comments some gravitas. And what we are seeing today is what happens in third world countries. Former President Bush, Laura and I are watching the scenes of mayhem unfolding at the seat of our nation's government in disbelief and dismay. This oh, you're not going to do your Bush voice for this? I'm not. Okay. Uh, this is how election results are disputed in a banana republic, not our democratic republic. We're going to bracket that and come back to that later. It's really offensive for about a thousand reasons. Yeah. I mean, anything coming from Bush is offensive for multiple reasons. Wisconsin Republican Representative Mike Gallagher, quote, we are witnessing absolute banana republic crap at the United States Capitol right now. Claire McCaskill former senator from Missouri and recent loser, said, quote, Trump has made us into a third world banana republic. So we got a combination there of third world banana republic. Mm -hmm. The shining democracy on a hill is sustaining real damage today. Shame on his co-conspirators. Greg Sargent of Washington Post said, quote, CNN reports that according to White House sources, Trump is watching all this unfold on TV and has been resisting demands from staff to put out a stronger statement, calling on his supporters to stand down. A banana republic paralyzed by street violence. Jake Wieger of the Young Turks wrote, quote, luckily it's a hashtag clown coup being executed by a very, very low IQ guy. But this is what a coup looks like. Trump turned this country into a banana republic and... The GOP encouraged him every step of the way. I don't know anything that's hurt the reputation of America more than this. Congressman Steve Cohen, a Democrat from Tennessee, wrote, quote, Trump is an enemy of America. This is now a third world country led by a tin pot dictator. Later adding, Russia, if you are reading this, come and take your president home. And of course, Jake Tapper, our good friend on Citations Needed, Jake Tapper wrote, Quote, it's surreal. I feel like I'm talking to a correspondent reporting from, you know, Bogota. So, yeah, this has been a go-to for a long time. We've talked about it. Um, 2016, we saw this over and over and over again. Joy Ann Reed, quote, the GOP has developed an almost third world attitude towards the presidency. Economist Justin Wolfers, quote, threatening your political opponents with prison is third world dictatorial stuff. Undemocratic, un-American. Politico, Donald Trump tweets like a Latin American strongman. Trevor Noah uh, compared him to an African dictator. The Washington Post's editorial wrote, in July of 2016, America would be Trump's banana republic. Lock her up is the chant of a banana republic, another Washington Post editorial from a week later. 
he was compared to Hugo Chavez in 2016 over 30 times, uh, constantly saying he's a Latin American dictator. In fact, Politico did an article saying Trump is like a Latin American dictator, complete with a, they dressed him up as a Latin American military general and put a cigar in his mouth and even darkened his skin to kind of make him look Latino. So we see this over and over again because, again, it, it is how we process what's happening because we can't, <laughs> right? it can't be fundamental to who the United States is. So we have to say that he's somehow foreign or foreign-esque. And of course, the most offensive part about this, Nemo, we were talking about this offline, is that <laughs> yeah, exactly. the reason why democracy is undermined in so many countries, not always, but I would say most of the time, is due to meddling by the United States. Right. What does the term banana republic mean? Like, what is the banana? What does the banana refer to? <laughs> right. It is the resource to be exploited, to be extracted, to have effectively a colonized space or, you know, like a, a American satrapy that can export resources. A banana republic stretching back to the late 18th century, of course, with Hawaii and, you know, pineapple trade and dole and, you know, into Latin South America. Like, that's where that term comes from. And so the idea that using it on the United States, and we saw this right around election time as well, uh, CNN, Trump making U.S. look like a banana republic. Newsweek, uh, right after the election, had this headline, Banana Republic Amid Trump Voter Fraud Claims. All of these things, the idea that we are now this thing that everyone knows is foreign, is dirty, is corrupt, is illegitimate. It can never be who we are, right? It's, it's never homegrown. It is always imposed from the outside. And the real tragedy of all of this is just, of course, where that term comes from. And it has to do with American imperialism. And it's not ancient either. I mean, Bush, who's, you know, posturing about the importance of we're not a banana republic, we're a democratic republic, was this his CIA via Elliot Abrams and other these other regime change goals was central to and had a hand in the Venezuelan coup in 2002 that in many ways this mimicked except mm -hmm. when your coup doesn't have the backing of a foreign intelligence agency and, and the corporate elite it doesn't have a chance of succeeding whereas it did in Venezuela briefly. So again, this instinct to compare and to equate to these foreign presumably, I mean, really what they should just say because it's like this is basically what they're saying is saying this doesn't happen. This happens in majority black and brown countries. Right, right. Just say that. Say that we are not a, instead of saying that he's like some African dictator, just say he's like a black leader. Because that's really what you're evoking, right? That's really what you're kind of gesturing towards. So like, just own it. Just own your racism when you say this shit. Well, right. And like the other side of that coin is kind of really saying, this is not how white people are supposed to act. Yes. Right? Oh, the horror. This is not what we should expect from the whites. And meanwhile, we have Capitol Police and Washington, D.C. police taking selfies with the mob and letting the mob in, opening up the gates and letting them in. There's several video clips showing this. Opening the gates, like literally moving the stanchions away. And these white American fascists go in there with Confederate flags, mysteriously an Amy K flag, though not that mysterious, but kind of mysterious, a flag of Israel, a Confederate flag, Christian flag. These are American institutions for the most part. These people are homegrown American fascists. And so when you want to sort of express outrage at this, I mean, I, at least I didn't see this. Basically, no one uses the F word. No one calls these people fascists, even though they very obviously are. No one even really uses the right wing to term extreme right wing or far right. We talk in these, you know, maybe they'll, they'll sort of 
talk about whiteness, but even that's been sort of stripped of its political content. And the terms white supremacist or white nationalist are also rarely used. Yeah, those are rarely used too. And so you have to sort of reach for language to sort of express how outrageous this is. And you got to say, well, it's like those foreign places over there. Mm -hmm. And this is how I think to a large extent, the liberal and centrist mind has coped with Trumpism for the last five years is we don't want to confront the fact that he has a very large constituency that's over 70 million people voted for him, knowing who he was the second time, right? This is not a first time. This is not a fool me once kind of thing. It's like what, you know, Michael Jordan always said that his second title was his favorite because that proved that it wasn't a fluke. The second title is always the sweetest because that's how you establish that this is really the essence of who you are. And when 70 million plus people vote for him again, Mm -hmm. this is not a one-off thing. This is essential to who we are in the political project of American colonialism and empire. And we should talk about that and we should have a conversation about that. And Mm -hmm. this is not an anomaly. It is not something that happens, quote unquote, in the third world. It is something that is happening here. Versions of it have happened here. In 2000, there was effectively a coup using lawfare and a bunch just because the coup makers wore robes and had lawyers does not make it a coup, uh, does not make it not a coup rather. And, you know, we have a situation where the person who doesn't get the most votes loses. We have a Senate that represents where Democrats are, it's 50-50, but Democrats represent 50 million more people. I mean, we have all kinds of anti-democratic institutions built into the DNA of our country that don't require the evocation of Africa or the Middle East or Bogota. 160 years ago, this was the country that had a civil war. Right. When white supremacist like plantation owners decided to secede from the country and that that insurrection, that rebellion, although I kind of have a positive feeling toward the term rebellion at this point. So I don't want to actually ascribe it to, uh, you know, this kind of right-wing riotous fascist mob, but that is obviously a fundamental part of our history in this country, the fucking civil war. And yet the only kind of analogy that can be made at this point, and not that I think we need to be making civil war analogies. It's just the idea of the foreignness the third worldness, the banana republicness of having anything but a noble transition of power where the Bushes and the Obamas or the Clintons and the Bushes or the Bushes and the Bushes and the Clintons and the Clintons, you know, all kind of hang out together. That anything other than that is, again, oh my word, this is what the blacks and the browns do and not what the whites do. And then we had this very on-brand and totally excruciating tweet from Ben Rhodes, former Obama advisor and Biden's appointing and waiting. He's just begging to be appointed to something. Quote, this is the day that Vladimir Putin had waited for (laughs) since he had to leave East Germany as a young KGB officer at the end of the Cold War. What does fucking Putin have to do with anything here. <laughs> the idea that like what Putin thinks, to say nothing of the fact that since he left KGB, we've had plenty of white supremacist subjugations. We had the Dakota Access Pipeline. We had the U.S. Army come in to subdue the L.A. riots in 1992. We, we of course, had Ferguson. We had Minneapolis. We had all these various iterations of, of white supremacist subjugation of blacks asking for basic freedoms. And then you see this happen again. You see this white supremacist mob, which has been incited by the president for the past three months, specifically in the context of a a made-up stolen election. But obviously for years, this has been ginned up. Fox News, Mm -hmm. OAN, all these, you know, Tucker Carlson. Breitbart, literally elected Republican officials. You know, they've been ramping these fascist mobs up. It's, you know, it's surprising it hasn't happened sooner. 
And then we turn around and we say, well, you know, what, what does Putin think? And it's like, guys, who gives a fuck? Like, how rotten is your brain that this is the first thing you think of? How do I further embolden and fund my weapons contractor funded think tank buddies? And then how can this be more puppet mastery as opposed to what America is, right? Like, what is happening here by people who have autonomy here and are making these decisions here as Americans? And people say, okay, well, what's the point of doing the whole, like, this is who we are routine? And I think that's a reasonable question. And what I'd say to that is that, first off, there's something to be said for the truth, and there's something to be said for reality. And you can't fix a problem if you don't adequately and accurately describe what the problem is. And Trump and Trumpism is a manifestation of existing fascist currents that are fundamental to this country, including, by the way, the police and the ideology of the Blue Lives Matter and police, pro-police elements. And until we have an existential conversation about those forces and those systems, then we're never going to even begin to get towards a movement that can solve them. So let's talk a bit about this, which is that you had the police working hand in glove, taking selfies with, opening up the gates for these fascist protesters. They did nothing to stop them. And anyone who's been involved in Black Lives Matter will tell you the reason they didn't is because they agree with them. They didn't stop them for the same reason that a Bears offensive lineman doesn't turn around and tackle the running back while he's going towards the goals because they agree with them. They're on the same side. And this is not just one of these like left-wing truisms. Like it is, there's documented evidence that police have worked with Proud Boys. They've worked with white supremacists. Mm -hmm. We know that, you know, they always say they've infiltrated white supremacists or police departments. (laughs) White supremacists have infiltrated it. No, they haven't. Khalil Mack did not infiltrate the Bears. They are on the same team. They are part of who they are. And this really ought to be, this has to show the urgency of, I think, defund the police or abolish the police because it shows that you cannot reform these institutions any more than you can reform Proud Boys or reform the KKK or reform QAnon. They are existentially racist to their core. And I'm not sure how many times, I mean, again, personal example, totally anecdotal. You can take it or leave it. But Black Lives Matter protest I was at in December of 2014 after those two police officers were killed by, uh, uh, I guess, uh, someone who had come down from Baltimore and the tensions were running high. And I was at Grand Central Station and I saw with my own two eyes a white vigilante guy. He looked like a cop, but he may not have been, but he sort of had that Staten Island look. He walks up to a protester, totally unprovoked, punches him right in the face and walks by four police officers with grins on their face as he walks away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is something that anyone who spent 10 minutes at a protest will tell you, that the police routinely embolden, they help, they assist, and they overlook these people because they agree. And the reason why they're taking selfies with them is because they're their friends. And we saw this in the Minneapolis protest. They were, they, you had National Guard and police on various occasions hanging out with, chit-chatting with these Blue Lives Matter cranks because they're in league. And this is the conversation we should be having is, man, this seems existential. It's not just the the MAGA weirdos who showed up and incited violence. That is obviously a huge part of it. But it's if these police, these rank and file police stand by and let them do it and in many ways encourage them to do it and make jokes about it. One police officer responded saying, well, I bet they like us now in reference to liberal liberals in Congress mm-hmm. with respect to the police. Then we should be having an existential conversation about white supremacy in this country and the institutions of that protect capital and specifically white capital. And we're not, we're having conversations about, oh, isn't this like Bogota? Isn't this like the Middle East? And it's not. Well, right. And also anyone who has ever been to a protest in Washington, DC knows full well the force that is able to be 
exacted on many, many, many people by Capitol Police and by uh, local law enforcement, not to mention like bringing in the National Guard, of course. But that power exists. I'm not saying I wish that upon people, but the idea, the narratives that we are seeing about what happened keep trying to say like, they were caught off guard. They weren't expecting this. They were outnumbered. They were, it's like when there's a protest being held by 16 people across the street from the White House, Capitol Police know about it well in advance and they are mobilized to suppress or at least surround Kettle, let alone, you know, if they decide to tear gas and beat people. But like that force exists. The idea that what happened today happened by accident or by mistake is absurd. I turned on MSNBC earlier and heard Ari Melber say this was a huge failure, right? A failure by the Capitol Police and by local law enforcement. It was not a failure. This was on purpose. This was deliberate. This was allowed to happen. And every single person like, it makes the obvious point over and over again, over and over again, that if these were black protesters or, you know, and immigration reform, it would have been a bloodbath within five minutes. And the thing is, that's a super obvious and cliche thing to point to make. But my God, like, it's true. Yeah. Right? Like, it, the fact that it's cliche doesn't mean it isn't worth reinforcing because it shows that, and this is, I think, the thing that we're trying to get through people's thick skulls is those who don't necessarily see this. But, like, this is not a reformable concept. It's not a reformable institution. It is not something you can take. You cannot do more bias training that this is existential to what these institutions are and who they protect and the capitalist system they protect. Mm -hmm. And this is why we point this out. Every single time there's any kind of white vigilante violence, the double standards are so apparent to everybody. But noting the double standards isn't enough. What it does is it teases out what we ought to do and what we should do, mm -hmm. which is completely restructure these systems that are not designed to protect people. They're, they're designed to protect property. They're designed to protect capital and the creation of white spaces as a political concept. And so, again, I'm happy people are pointing it out, and it's good to point out. I just We need to go past the sort of hypocrisy gotcha and go to the political implications of what that means, mm -hmm. which is that that police, and again, this is the Democratic establishment, the president, most Democrats in Congress, most elected, especially liberal Democratic mayors, are supporters of and funders of the police. And they can do the gotcha all they want until they're blue in the face. But until you start meaningfully reducing the power and the budgets of these institutions, the institutions defined by Trumpism, whether we have a Trump or not, they've been doing Trumpism, you know, for decades, Yeah, right? Then it's all bullshit. Then it doesn't matter. And this is why all this smug chauvinist crap about, oh, it's in the third world is so grating and I think damaging because it really avoids the central conversation that it is not an anomaly. It is not a one-off. It is existential to who we are. And that is not just a Twitter slogan. It is true. And we need to interrogate why that is. Well, right. And... You know, what that does as well is it obfuscates how the United States reacts when, quote unquote, third world countries, you know, experience upheaval or insurrection. And it's met with not only harsh condemnation, of course, but sometimes UN action, sometimes sanctions, sometimes bombing and invasion, sometimes um, coups. Like, think about how this would be reported on were it not the United States. And security forces in other countries, in these, you know, so-called third world countries or, you know, official enemy states of this country, those security forces are, are sometimes condemned at the highest levels of our own political and media discourse as terrorist organizations, are sometimes put on terrorist lists. And yet, 
that scrutiny obviously is not going to be turned back around, is not going to be reflected here. But that is, I think, exactly the point here, right? That like what we condemn others for, rightly or not, and obviously there's all sorts of propaganda at work in media and political discourse about other countries. But the idea here is not, uh, yeah, that this is some anomaly. Oh my God, how were they caught off guard? This is cops and white supremacist fascist cult rioters. Yeah, they're letting them blow off some steam, whatever, you know? Right, doing shit. Like, if you saw the fucking videos, there were the videos of the FBI SWAT team that eventually got their asses over to the Capitol, right? Like, a few hours later, I guess they decided to, like, literally walk over. And you could see there was just... (laughs) It's not that I want them to act like jackbooted thugs. I, I do not. But, like... The lack of urgency or giving a shit. Yeah, of course. They didn't want to be there because those are their buddies. They're on their side fundamentally. You know, I saw fucking Chiron right before we hopped on this recording, Adam, on TV that said 15 people were arrested today. One five. 15. The U.S. Capitol building was broken into. This is a very high security place, right, in the country. Broken into 15 people. Thousands of people outside, thousands of people not where the, you know, cops allegedly wanted them to be at the beginning of the day. Fifteen people. You walk down the street in fucking Brooklyn with a Black Lives Matter t-shirt with a few hundred other people. At least a few hundred people are getting arrested because they'll also pick up, you know, people who just happen to be like coming out of a fucking bodega or walking down the street. Yeah, you know, there was a really kind of obnoxious current where people would say... Oh, it's not a coup. Trump's a joke. This is, this is silly. And there was a sort of back and forth of whether or not it was a coup. How do you define coup? And I think the threat of an actual coup, like an achievable pathway to a real coup, I don't think was. I think if the election was close, there absolutely would have been because there would have been lawfare and Republican support. But in a blowout election, which it ended up being, I don't think that was ever plausible. The problem with the coup is not the achieving of the coup. It's what happens in the event you try one and or you incite your followers. Mm-hmm. To do it. And on Twitter, I suggested that maybe Twitter on election day, I said on the day after the election, when Trump was denying the results, I said they need to ban him from social media. He's going to get someone killed, that he has crossed the line to direct incitement and that I was part of the centrist left, I believe uh, someone called me. Um, yeah. And first off, having consistent use of terms of service is not trying to censor anyone. Obviously, he's the president and get his message out through other ways. But there, he was obviously very clearly for months inciting people to commit violence. Because if you, if you argue an election has been stolen from you, the only logical implication of that is to go commit violence, right? You don't have to say go shoot someone. But if, mm-hmm. if you undermine, if you disenfranchise millions of people, if I guess whoever, the CIA, deep state, whatever, that was supposedly rigging the election for Biden and all the Republicans, to, secretaries of state throughout the country as well, I guess, we're all in on it. Then a lot of unstable people, a lot of, well, perfectly stable people, perfectly healthy and and lucid, who nonetheless are racist and fascist, will listen to that and they'll go grab their guns and they'll do some shit. And what we saw today was a version of that and why that kind of incendiary language is so dangerous and why I don't think being glib about that or belittling that is very useful. Again, I think there's always, there's been hysteria on the other end in terms of like, oh, Trump's going to, you know, control the government and do this. I I think that was always kind of silly because the military doesn't coup conservatives and Biden is fundamentally conservative, right? They, they coup leftist. But I, you know, I think this shows the sort of danger of having these, and the whole time I'm watching this, I'm and immediately after the election, the parallels were obvious. 
that he was running the exact same playbook the CIA mm-hmm. and, and the oligarchs ran in Bolivia, which is make false accusations of fraud, totally baseless. And then once those, those baseless accusations are brought to the fore, brought to your attention, you just deny, deny, deny. And that's exactly what happened in Bolivia. Well, and, and that then the media is against you, and then the deep state is against you, and then the lawyers are against you. and that, Right, right, exactly. Right. And I think that if you're going to talk about, if you're going to evoke the third world, quote unquote, or the global south, you should use this opportunity to say that these tactics Trump is using, albeit in a somewhat half-assed way and without the support of a foreign security service, then you should use that to show how America does these same things in other countries, including just last year. Right. Right. This is not, or rather 2019, about a year ago, that that is what we should do to, we should invoke the foreign, we should talk about how the U.S. meddles and overthrows these governments. And then when we turn around and the ignorant American looks at all the conflict that arises from that or sectarian conflict that arises from U.S. invading countries, and then we say, oh, that's just a cycle of violence, right? You see, we we pathologize Palestinians all the time too, that, oh, that's just them over there. That's how they are over there. It's like, no, they were actually relatively peaceful for many, many decades. But we did shed, and not to say that we're responsible for everything, obviously, but we're responsible for a lot of it. And to the extent to which we do evoke the quote unquote third world, then we should do it in that way, mm-hmm. not in this kind of lazy racist, oh, well, we're not like Venezuela, we're not like Colombia. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think some of what we're seeing today is ignoring really how dangerous this is. You know, as you, as you said, you know, the incitement to violence turns into actual violence. It has in the past already. It did again today. And I'm not just talking about like broken windows and having Nancy Pelosi's office fucked up. But, like, a woman was shot and died today in the Capitol building. I mean, she was taken to the hospital and died at the hospital. But this is not simply some jackasses with flags and, like, ridiculous hats and shirts and costumes breaking into a building and, like, taking selfies with cops. Like, yes, that is also true. That also happened. That is also fucked up in its own way. But there was real violence that happened today, and I think we don't you know, no many details about that yet. Was it part of the, you know, Trump mob? Was it law enforcement who who shot this person? I, we don't know. But there are real life and death implications here that I just, you know, I don't want to be lost uh, here in this, in this conversation. I think, um, you know, it's easy to be glib and to talk about the clown cult and the absurdity of like MAGA world and QAnon wackos, but people are really in danger here. And the idea that the media has now also the media has now decided that protesters is now a much more sacred term for people gathering and uh you know making demands having a having a march or having a pushing forward a movement that uh now you know many folks in the media are saying we're not going to call them protesters uh these are mobs which i don't disagree with. I think that's good. Language, you know, we talk about on the show, language matters. The way the press uh, labels things, describes things, very important. I just think it's funny that finally, finally, this is when they get around to it. Well, when they were attacking, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters and Antifa and counter-protesters, they were not a mob. But when they came into the sacred halls of Washington, then suddenly it was outrage time. I mean, it's because it began, you know, it's it's a cliche, uh, fascism is imperialism turned inwards. And uh, we're seeing that play out, right? Now that it's touched the sacred halls of American institutions, suddenly everyone at Washington Post and CNN and the New York Times is discovering criticisms that fairness and accuracy and reporting were making in the late 90s, right? Right. That right. they're soft peddling racism. They're soft pedaling. So suddenly we can call a lie a lie. We can call racist racist. But it wasn't until these institutions mm-hmm. began to undermine their buddies in D.C. and New York and started to affect 
the sort of comfortable media classes directly, then suddenly we're all aware of the importance of precision in language and not to shy away from and be too precious about being tabloidy. Exactly. Well, we will definitely uh, be keeping our eyes on this. There are surely more news briefs to come in the coming days. We will be back with citations needed full-length episodes very, very shortly this month, January 2021. Thank you, everyone, for your ongoing support, for listening to Citations Needed, to spreading the word, to rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, if that's something you are uh, inclined to do. You can follow the show on Twitter at Citations Pod, Facebook Citations Needed, and of course, become a supporter of the show through patreon.com slash citations needed podcast with Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. Thank you again for all your support. I'm Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. Citations Needed is produced by Florence Burrow Adams. Associate producer is Julianne Tweet, and production assistant is Trenda Lightburn. Newsletter by Marco Cardellano. The transcriptions are by Morgan McCaslin. The music is by Granddaddy. Thanks again, everyone. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>